And you'll see that Solomon does this. He kind of cycles and recycles. He comes at an, at an issue, describes it, that leads him on some spiritually uh, uh, profitable and spirit-ordained rabbit trails, and then he comes back to these, these issues a, a, as well. So we're going to see that happen over and over in these themes that keep coming up during this book. I just turned on my uh, iPhone uh, this afternoon and glanced down a couple of headlines or a couple of papers, rather, and the headlines that are on the front page. Syrian uh, crisis of refugees. Um, a clerk who's put in jail because of her biblical convictions. Um, uh, a shooting leaves a seven-year-old boy dead. A shark bites a kayaker uh, off the Malibu coast. A child's body parts are found in, Chicago, in a Chicago park. The Pope calls on Catholics to shelter Europe's migrants. Um, and then there's political infighting. It's just amazing. If you open the newspaper almost any day and begin reading, there's no question that we live in a world that is broken, mean, unfair, immoral, and just plain cruel. The newspapers and the evening news are reflections of our world that has gone completely off the rails, and sometimes we would say it's mad. Instead of telling us what's new, which is what the news is supposed to do, it keeps telling us what's gone wrong. But you can't really blame them because most of what is new and news is indeed bad. We're not the first generation to see this. We're not the first generation to experience this, to see how broken our world is. Our grandparents lived in a world where Adolf Hitler existed and reigned. hundred and change years ago, there was a civil war in our country, several civil wars happening in Europe, mass genocide happening in South Africa. Go back a little farther and you can see a world that saw kings execute wives for having a girl instead of a boy a world where killing in the name of God, the Crusades, was tagged Christian education. It's a pretty interesting evangelistic ploy, isn't it? Repent or we'll kill you. No matter how far back you look, no matter how many newspapers you read, no matter how uh, you, you record history in any book or look at what's happened in this world, we... We simply maintain that the world has been broken and is a most difficult place to live and maintain a proper perspective, at least from a biblical worldview. Now, one of the reasons I love the Bible, I think of hundreds, if not thousands of reasons we could talk about that tonight, but one of the reasons I really love how God spoke to us is that it never skirts or ignores really, really painful situations it never skirts reality. It never ignores pain. It never ignores that the world we live in is broken and doesn't always work as we desire. And the reason that I'm growing more impressed with this treasure that we call God's Word, specifically this book of Ecclesiastes, is because of the absolute brutal honesty and integrity of Solomon. Let's go back and look at the background. Here's Solomon, who was the wisest man to have ever lived up to that point. Except for Jesus Christ, he was the wisest man who ever lived, period. 
He was given that wisdom as a gift of God because God said, what do you want? I'll give you anything you desire. And Solomon asked for a wise and discerning heart so that he could do two things. He could rule the people well and he could discern matters between good and evil, right and wrong. Chapter one of Ecclesiastes starts out in a very interesting place where chapter 11 drops us off of 1 Kings. If you go to 1 Kings and you see the life of Solomon, you'll see that at the end of that, his life is in an absolute spiral downward. He's, he's being lured away from Yahweh, from his God, by, frankly, the women he had married. He had a 1,000 women in his life, and they were all tugging and pulling on him away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, and toward the pagan deities. And 1 Kings 11 makes it very clear that he turned his heart away from God and turned to these idols because he loved these women. Let me just say again to junior hires and senior hires and to collegians, learn from Solomon. The person that you choose to be romantic with and end up marrying, listen, that will have the most important and dramatic and long-lasting influence on your spiritual health on what you believe, on how you think. The Holy Spirit drops Solomon off after the middle of 1 Kings 11 and Rehoboam comes on the scene and things don't go any better. In fact, this kingdom splits between he and Jeroboam in the north and it goes really bad from there. Had that been the last we heard of Solomon, we could have scratched our head and said, was was he really blessed by the Lord? Was he really even, even saved? How could he do this? How could he turn his back on God? And yet we have the book of Ecclesiastes, which is Solomon after we don't know how many years, this period of time, coming to his senses and writing this sermon. Now he is raw and his soul is bloody. He is telling us how it is and how it has been for his own experiment with the world. How he's tried everything to substitute for the only thing that will cure his loneliness, his despair, and his satisfaction, which is God. Ecclesiastes is him coming to his senses. It's a sermon. He's called Koheleth in the Hebrew. It means a preacher. He's preaching a sermon to, drum roll, Students, when you get to the last chapter, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. So before we think of this as high-level wisdom and, and erudite philosophy that we can't understand, we can't. The issue in Ecclesiastes is not so much that it's hard to understand, it's that it's hard to accept. Chapter one, he gives us his thesis that all is vanity, which means temporary. It's, it's transitory. It's that steam off a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment and gone. Verse 18 says he's the wisest man to live and the wisest man to speak about life. Chapter 2 is that experiment we looked at over a course of, of weeks of study that he tried fun, drunkenness, materialism, entertainment, music, sex, competition, or being the best. And its conclusion was that all was striving after the wind. It was vanity. It's like those little kids in the nursery when we torture them by blowing bubbles and they go and grab the bubble only to open their hand and see that there's nothing there. Solomon said, that's what these pursuits were as I tried to fill my life with pleasure. Then in chapter three, 
He says the only way you can make sense out of life is to remember that God is sovereign over every event and he's sovereign over a world that he's cursed. See how this dovetails into what we were talking about this morning? And he cursed it. Not only did he curse it, if you really read the narrative of Genesis 3, remember he drove Adam and Eve out of paradise. He drove them out of the garden where they would enjoy pure pleasure, uh, food without work. And he sentenced them and everyone since then to work by the sweat of the brow to eat and to make it. This raises some questions that must be answered, and Solomon anticipates that we would answer, ask these questions as any good preacher would. The questions that Solomon raises here at the end of chapter 3, going into chapter 4, are the same ones that you and I have no doubt talked about, faced, wondered about over and over. I keep going back to that title. I can't get over that title of that, that uh, book written by the youth pastor that so captures what Solomon is trying to address. Remember, if, if God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? It's such a good question. We're on your side. We've given you our life. We're, we're denying ourselves. We're, we're on your team. And yet, read the newspaper. Go to school and check it out. Sit down in your cubicle. Go by your office mate's desk. In our text this evening, Solomon is going to ask the adult version of, if God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? Why is this so hard? If God is in control, then why is there injustice, death, oppression, complexity, rivalry, loneliness, and disregard? Why does that happen? These are the same objections that we face that King Solomon canonizes in this book and we have to wrestle with them, and we have to wrestle with them honestly and openly, and that's exactly what Ecclesiastes invites us to do. Now, we began this encounter in our last study looking at the end of chapter 3. We're going to go back and pick up what we did very briefly in chapter 3 so we have momentum to go into chapter 4. Here's our outline that we'll follow tonight. Objections to God's sovereignty under the sun. These are objections to God's sovereignty under the sun. We say under the sun, that's the tag that Solomon keeps talking uh, uh, about the earth with, the, the world. And what he means by that is this life outside the Garden of Eden, since God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, this side of the garden and this side of heaven. That's what it means to live life under the sun. So we're going to look at these objections and then we're going to have a little practical tag by the implication I think Solomon intends for us to look at. Number one, God is sovereign, but, here's an objection, there is injustice in the world. We looked at this briefly last time. If God is really in control, then why is there injustice? Why does life not work out the way that we want it to? Why are there so many problems and so many uh, Natural disasters and disasters in our neighborhoods and disasters with our families. Why, why does this keep happening? Why is there injustice? Remember chapter 3, verse 16. We looked at this last time. 
Furthermore, I've seen that under the sun in the place of justice, that's the courts, there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. And I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for every matter and every deed there is, is there. He's saying the courts don't work like we wanted them to. I think it wouldn't take us very long if I broke you up into small groups to say, can you think of a high-profile court case in your lifetime that has gone the way of injustice? It wouldn't be difficult to isolate. There's injustice in the world. Good guys, innocent people lose. Let me put it in the church history context. Men who stood for the gospel were tied to stakes and burnt alive. In that same era, pregnant women, because of the gospel, were tied to stakes, burnt alive, and this one woman, Peritine Kaushwin, gave birth at the stake. And the officials grabbed the infant and threw it back in the fire. Why is there injustice? It's not right. It's not, what's our word? Fair. I read not long ago about a girl in India who entered into an arranged marriage. Her new husband was not pleased with her family's dowry of a refrigerator, furniture, and other household goods because it did not include a motorcycle. So in retribution, the husband brought three of his friends in with them on their wedding night, and they took turns raping her. Remember, she did not know him before this night. The local court met, heard the case, and decided that the accused man will face no punishment. How can we handle a world like this and believe that God is in control? How can we handle that? Verse 17 is the answer. Because there is a judgment coming. God will judge. He will right every wrong. He will make everything perfect or good in its time. I love the word every. Nobody and no crime and no injustice will ever go unjudged. But when? When will that happen? Solomon answers that in the next point. But when we encounter, and we will, injustice, Now, just the word injustice haunts my mind. I was in high school, and um, it was a civics test that I was going to take. And um, unbeknownst to me, a group of people, the period, two, two or three periods before our test, had gotten a hold of the answer key and the, the test itself, and had passed that around, and a bunch of people cheated. And uh, I was accused, I didn't cheat, but I was accused with this group of people of of cheating on this test. And I didn't. I did a lot of other stupid things that I could have gotten in trouble for. But this time, this time, I was innocent. He wouldn't believe me. And so, I had to write a paper and take the test again in his presence. And I just remember thinking, this isn't right. This isn't fair. And I went home to my father, who was a drill sergeant in the Marine Corps in his previous years, and had the, his sympathy was about as deep as a birdbath. And I remember telling him, 
Dad, this is not fair. I want you to go fix this. And I, ha- I basically had everything that he needed to do lined out. And he looked at me and he said, Ricky, your problem is you think the world is fair. And if that's your, is that your, if that's your thought, you are going to have a very troubled life. I'm like, I'm on your, I didn't cheat this time. It's not fair. The Bible reminds us over and over and over to leave judgment and vengeance to God. Deuteronomy 32, 35, 39, 43. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Remember, good guys might not finish first, but bad guys go to hell. That's an important reality to remember. God is sovereign, but there's injustice in the world. So what? So trust God's justice. There's your practical takeaway. Trust God's justice. He will make it right in the end. Secondly, again, we're reviewing. God is sovereign, but there's death. God is sovereign, but there is death. Verses 18 to 22. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. You say, what do you mean by that, Solomon? He tells us in verse 19, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. Ah, he's not calling us all beasts, even though we act like it. He's saying we have the same fate, the same end uh, as beasts do. As one dies, animals, so the other dies, people. Indeed, all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over the beast, for all is vanity. All he's saying there is animals die, and so are you. All go to the same place. All came from dust. All return to dust. Who knows what the breath of man, uh, that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast descends downward to the earth. He's saying there is an afterlife for men. There's not for animals except my dog when I was a kid. I've seen that there's nothing better than a man should be happy with his activities for this is his lot for who will bring him to see what will occur after him. That's a, that's a, Kind of a good news. We looked at this last week. Enjoy life where you can. Be happy in your activities. As long as you're operating within the pages of Scripture and you're not disobeying moral commands by God, then enjoy life. Be happy in your activities. But know that they're not going to last forever. There is a coffin waiting for all of us. Someone, if you haven't done it yet, someone will sit with a lump in their throat and tears in their eyes and decide what's on your gravestone. It's not if, it's when. There's death. How do we deal with death? Death is the great leveler. You can't escape it. All the vitamins, health clubs, facelifts, the best of the doctors. Nothing will save the inevitability us from death. So, King Solomon's point here is that we will return to the dust just as animal will, animals will. We are no more powerful against death than an animal. But we're far different from the animals in that we will not, they will not face the creator in judgment. Every person will. We have to be ready to face the great judge. That will be how the book will end as a conclusion, is be ready to face the judgment. That's review. Now we turn in the same vein into chapter four. Be ready to face your judge is the takeaway from point three. Number three, God is sovereign. Here's an objection, but there's oppression. 
It's just meanness. Look at verses one through three. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I've never found anyone in my life for whom Ecclesiastes 4.3 was their life burst. It would be better off if I just hadn't existed. We may have felt that way, but I hope that's not your life verse. What is he saying here? Listen, life is often depressing, frustrating, painful, exasperating. I find this to be true as a pastor and a counselor. I find it more true as a Christian. What do you tell a woman who sat in my office just after she found out her, that her husband had cheated on her and now has the AIDS virus. Or my friend Greg, Kim was able to meet Greg, who six days before his wedding day was killed in a head-on collision. What do you tell his bride-to-be? Or another friend who lost her pastor husband in a car wreck with very small children and she was in her 20s. Solomon looked at his kingdom. He looked around at all that was happening in, in Israel and while he had the resources to party and enjoy life as chapter 2 told us there was a vast majority of people living in and under oppression from employers, from physical disease, and from grief. You need to remember oppression, just feeling under the weight of something. We have the ability to go to a doctor. Praise God for doctors. Praise God for what they can do for us. Praise God for penicillin, for antibiotics. In Solomon's day, there was no doctor. Praise God for insurance. That if your car, something happens to your car, there's help for that. There was none of that. Praise God for safety deposit boxes and the FICA and the, all of these, these sure things that come underneath our money. There was no banks. There was, if you lost something, you, you lost it. If you were sick, you were sick. If you were oppressed, you didn't have a court to appeal to. You were in trouble. I read sometimes the situation in the Old and New Testament times, and I just think, we are wimps. The things that we complain about? Verses 2 and 3, his point is not that suicide is the answer or that being outside of this life is better than being inside. What he's saying is, have you ever felt this way? It just would have felt better. Maybe if I didn't exist and then feel bad like I do now. You just get to the point of depression and you see only dark and you think maybe it would be better just not to be. There's an answer 
And the answer is God himself, not freedom from oppression. That's where Solomon's going to end up at the end of the discourse, chapter 5. He's going to end us in the house of God. He's going to land us at the end of this. Just look over right in the very beginning of his solution, this God is sovereign but situation. Guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Remember Asaph in Psalm 73? He's looking at his life. He wants to serve. He wants to please God. It's full of trouble. Then he considers the wicked people who are enjoying a great life with pleasure. They have everything they want, and the one who wants to follow God has nothing he wants. And he says, hang on until the end of that psalm in Psalm 73 Verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. See what he's saying? Having that eternal perspective that this world is not it. Listen, I get it. Some of you are living in injustices right now with family, with employers. You've been let go for, for, for a cause that wasn't just. You're not paid as much as someone who is, is a slacker. I, I understand that. I get it. So does Solomon. You know what he's saying? Your solution is not found in cessation from your problem. The solution is only found in God. God is sovereign, but there's oppression, so what? So give your grievances and take your grievances to God. Take them to the sanctuary. That's where we're going to end up in chapter 5. And say, help, God, you see this, help. Number four, fourth objection. God is sovereign. That's where we started in chapter 3 at the beginning. But there's competition. Now, what do you mean by competition? Listen to how Solomon explains this, verses 4 to 6. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. What in the world is he talking about? You all understand exactly what he's talking about. This is a cutthroat mentality where we all have experienced competition in the classroom. Remember that guy or remember that girl? What grade did you make? I made an 87. Oh, really? Well, what did you make? Oh, I made a 97. At work. Have you seen competition at work? In the family he makes more money than he does, and she's, you can go on and on, friendship, sometimes even in the church. There's a twinge of sarcasm in Solomon's voice in these three verses. Verse five, he talks about this, even idleness and laziness, which should exclude us from competition. Maybe you just fold your hands and just don't worry about anything, but that brings no satisfaction. That brings no meaning. There's dignity in work. God gave Adam a job to do. There's dignity in work. Verse six talks about rest. In this context, it has to do with being content in the rat race and the cutthroat mentality that we all find ourselves operating in. Ultimately, what drives our competitive hearts is selfish ambition and pride and jealousy. 
It's the monster of comparison, and it will eat you alive from the inside out. It will destroy your friendships. It will destroy your family. It will ultimately destroy you if you have to be that guy or that girl. There was a, there was a friend I had in high school. I will never forget him. I won't tell you his name. Um, we called him Triple B. Bigger, better, best. No matter what story was there, he had a better story. No matter what somebody said they had done, he'd done something better or bigger. He was the, always had to trump what you said, and it was obnoxious. And yet we're all that same way in our hearts. Just, can you comb back over a conversation that you've had in the last couple months where you have, have sensed the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder as you talk about your great feats of life or godliness or money or work or you fill in the blank? We're never more like God than when we're humble. That was his greatest expression of his, his love for humanity. He became a man. He humbled himself, Philippians 2 says. Competition is all about pride and a lack of humility. God is sovereign, but there's competition. So what? So don't be jealous. Let people win. Let people be better than you. They, there are people better than you. Rejoice in that. Enjoy that with them. When they have victories, You'll be surprised how it'll turn your heart when you enjoy their victories with them rather than against them. Number five, God is sovereign, and this is so practical, but there's loneliness. There's loneliness. This is not, you know, the, the, the wooing and swooning call of a bad love song. This is Solomon looking over ancient Israel and identifying loneliness. Verse 7. Then I looked again at the vanity under the sun. Remember the, all that's useless and temporal. There's a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with the riches, and he, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This to his vanity is grievous, a grievous task. His answer to that now is this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them fails, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Further, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but... How can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And then that famous verse that most of you know, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. He's talking about the problem of isolation, the problem of loneliness, of being alone. It's the logical extreme from escaping uh, competition is you find yourself at the top and you're alone. You're isolated. If your life is consumed with making it, with being the top of your game, you will probably do it alone. Verse 8 is a sad but all too common story of success. 
This guy doesn't even time for marriage, it sounds like. And he works himself into all these riches. He has no one to share it with, no one to leave it to. But unlike these other enigmas, Solomon actually gives us an answer and counsel to this one, which I love. Verse 9, he said, friendship provides help. Friendship provides help. The Bible says so much about being and finding good friends. I wish we had time just to talk with each other. I wish I had time to ask you, how many really good friends have you had in your life? I mean really good friends. This is the friend who you can call anytime, 24-7, who would be there uh, without one complaint instantly to help you, to serve you. This is that same friend who you would sacrifice anything to serve or to help. How many real friends do you have? The church ought to be fostering and forming those friendships. Verse 10, he tells us friendship provides encouragement and comfort. One falls, someone lifts him up, someone helps. It's dangerous to be by yourself. Even the simple protection of having someone to work beside you. I had a friend who almost died because he was out working on a, a logging farm by himself. The chainsaw slipped, hit him on the inside of his leg, and he almost bled out from his cut to his femoral artery because there was no one with him. He was able to crawl back to a place and find a landline and call someone. He just says it makes sense to do things with other people. You share the labor, you share the load, and you share one, one another's company. Now, I know that we have lots of snickers and giggles on verse 11. What's going on here? If two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? He is literally talking about what that means and basically in the companionship of marriage because there were no heaters. It's just a simple warmth of one another's presence. And then verse 12 is strength. I love verse 12. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Friendship provides strength. It provides counsel, encouragement. It is wise to have good friends, good friends, developed friends. Now, we don't have time to go over the whole uh, dimension of are we a good friend that people want to have? Are, are you that friend are you that friend that someone could call tonight at two in the morning and after their phone rings and you wake up and you kind of get your bearings about it and they said, listen, um, I have a problem. Can you, can you come over and help? Would you be there? Are you that kind of friend? Do people know that they can make that phone call? Do you, have you communicated, I am here for you. A cord of three strands is better than than one. We will not break soon together. You know exactly what he's talking about. You twist these cords together and it becomes very difficult to, to break. Do this experiment at home with your kids. Take a piece of paper, let them rip it. It's pretty easy. Take seven, they can rip it. It's a little harder. Take ten, it's harder. Put a whole inch of paper in front of them and see if they can rip it. You can't. I was just thinking about this, uh, looking over my notes this afternoon and my life is so blessed with good friends. I'm, so, I'm just so blessed with good friends. I can't imagine 
why anyone would want to live in lonely isolation. You say, where do you find those friends? Look around. The church is to provide those kinds of friendships. Number six, God is sovereign, but there's disregard. There's disregard. Verse 13, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. Disregard. Being teachable. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones to the ones who will come after them come later and will not be happy with him for this too is vanity and striving after the wind. The view from the top is not as good as the climb. Just know that. The most disillusioned people I have ever met are the ones who have fought their way at the top usually because they've stepped on the heads of people they called friends. A couple years ago I was uh, in another country and I met with a, a man who was, uh, it was a special uh, um, lunch that a friend of mine had kind of brokered with us because he wanted me to meet him. Um, he said, this will be the richest man you've ever met in your life. And I was curious about that. And then uh, as we were going to meet with him, he was telling me about the last four islands he had bought. Not houses, not neighborhoods, islands. I'm thinking of an island you could swim out to in the middle of the lake. These were islands with hundreds of thousands of people. He sat after we had lunch. He was invited to this uh, conference that I was pre preaching at. And after I had preached the sermon, he confessed something that was really troubling to me. He said, I wish I had what you had. I said, I mean, I don't have a lot. My briefcase is broken. I remember thinking my briefcase is broken. I, my luggage won't get me back home. What, what, are you, what are you talking about? He said, I got to tell you, I am miserable. I was a pretty safe guy. I was leaving to go out of, you know, out of the country again. But he, he just talked to me for about 10 minutes and said, I am miserable. And my kids are after nothing from me except my money. My friends only want me to do them favors. The only people who like me want something from me. And I went from being really impressed with this guy to feeling so, so compassionate for this guy. To be in that position where you're just, everyone has their hands in your wallet and on your wallet, in your pocket, trying to pull, that's, that's his life. And so he asked me a question. He said, this relates to this disregard, and this will relate to the competition. He said, how can I ever think that anyone wants to be around me because of me? Wow. Interesting question. Solomon notices the numbing, the, the humbling rather, reality that the people who are popular are incredibly fickle, verse 15 says. 
I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. This is the king who replaces uh, the, the first. His conclusion is that under the, under the sun, there is disregard. People will disregard you for not having money and they will disregard you for having money because they only want your money. One of the things that I ask the, the elders, and I'll tell you a weakness I have. It's, it's, it, it, this is a confession. I asked the elders way back four years ago, when, when, four and a half years ago when I was candidating. Um, we were, uh, I think there was a, just a couple of us. I don't think it was the whole board at the time. And I said, uh, can I ask you a, a simple question? There are people, we have deacons, and uh, some, some of our, uh, like Bob has to know things because of uh, banking accounts and stuff. There are some people who, who have to count money in the church. We have to make deposits. You understand that, right? People give, and we have to make deposits. But I asked them, I said, would you please never tell me who gives what? Because I'm afraid of what that would do to my heart. Well, they have money, I I wonder if they like to bow hunt. I wonder if they like to golf. I wonder if they like to, and you can fill in the blank. Because you begin using people for what you can get. Solomon's saying that. He's saying there's disregard. You're disregarded because you don't have the power or the money, or you're disregarded in light or in lieu of your money. It's incredible, your power. He's saying God is sovereign, but there's disregard, so what? So don't seek popularity. Don't seek popularity. The only way to navigate this broken world is with an experienced guide, and that's exactly what Solomon is. So, you know what he's going to do in chapter 5 after telling us the world is broken under sovereign God, and this is how you have to deal with God's sovereignty, even though you can't figure everything out? What do you do? Chapter 5, verse 1. Let me give you instruction on how you come to church. That's our vernacular. His was how you go into the house of God. How do you go to the place of worship and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools? For they do not know they are doing evil. We'll come back to this verse, but you know what he's saying? God is sovereign, but there are objections to his sovereignty that there are answers for, and your and my greatest, greatest feature, greatest attribute the most impressive thing in any person's life is being teachable. You can look back at all of these issues and find yourself, but the question is, are you going to stay there? Or will you learn? Will you be teachable in these categories? Will I be teachable when I see these things? Now, let me, let me have a little aside here for a moment, Okay. We have um, seven chapters left in Ecclesiastes. And we're going to continually be bobbing and weaving as Solomon says, do you see how bad it is? you see how bad it is? Can I, can I please remind you, read the last chapter. This was all one, one sermon that had a beginning, a body, and an end. And we're just taking points out. Can we look at the end for a second? The conclusion, chapter 12, verse 13, when all has been heard after everything we've mused about with Solomon is this, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God, 
when you look at the whole brokenness of the world, this is what you have to remember. Everything that hurts you, everything that harms you, everything that depresses you, everything that sticks in your, in your throat like a bone and you can't get over it seemingly, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or whether it's evil. You know what the sub-theme of all of Ecclesiastes is? Fear God. You know what the practical application to fearing God is? You trust God. It's that phrase we throw around so often with each other without really considering the depth of what it means to trust God, which means we know his character enough that he's trustworthy, and we know what he said enough to put it into action. In New Testament, that means trust his son. God, that he's talking about here, says, this is my beloved son. This is Jesus. Listen to him. Listen to him. Put your faith and hope in him. He is the one who can bring perspective here and hope for there. But I want to tell you, here's the hard reality. Solomon is going to continue to poke his finger right onto our sternum and say, really? Really, you think this world's going to give you what you want? What do you want? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? What do you want to have? What do you want to experience? Do you really think that's going to be the be-all, end-all so that you have or experience this and you finally say, ah, I'm content. Let me invite you to do something that's a little odd. Find someone in our church with gray hair. They'll, They'll know they have it, okay? And go ask them this. I would love to have a lunch with you. And then ask them this. In all your pursuits in life, was there anything you ever bought or did or went, a place you went, where you finished that and thought, I'm okay, I can die now. I'm done with all this world. I have absolute contentment. And they'll say, do you see these gray hairs? The answer is we haven't found it except for Christ. He is the central focus and the only one who brings meaning because he forgives sins and he offers us hope not only in this life but the next. Well, the next study in Ecclesiastes is going to be encouraging. It's going to be Solomon telling us how to do worship here in our own body. Father, give us perspective from this book. It is unedited and raw and yet so true and penetrating. Give us new ways of looking at life and thinking because of Solomon's instruction. He was there. He had been there. He had done it all. He had experienced it all. And he's the one who we long to listen to because you used King Solomon to teach us about life. Use these texts to cause great discussion between parents and children and parents and students and husbands and wives. Father, I do pray for those who have, well, the Proverbs calls the the white-headed, the gray hairs, the mature, the older, the godly, those who have lived and have the bumps and bruises of life and can turn to those who are younger and say, let me tell you what I've learned 
So Father, make us teachable. Make us teachable to your word, teachable to your spirit, and teachable within our body so that we don't make the same mistakes that Solomon makes. We can be spared those painful experiences. So open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Open our ears to hear counsel that is good and helpful. We pray this because of Christ. Amen.